Whilst you're waiting for the next episode of Travel, Food and Booze, have a listen to an episode of our previous podcast, Our Lives in Italy. Welcome to the next episode of Our Lives in Italy podcast, where we talk to famous people who also love Italy as much as us. Today's guest is Miranda Gore-Brown, finalist in the first series of The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> and as I walked out of the tent, Andy Devershaw, who's our director, he went across the thing. So it's so like, there's probably 45 people, crew and and all of us guys. Mm. And he went, just let everyone know, Miranda's going to Deluge, back in a few minutes. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh my goodness. Okay, welcome to the next episode of Our Lives in Italy. And our very special guest this morning is Miranda Gore-Brown. How are you this morning? Very good. Wishing I was in Italy. Ah, there's still a chance. Come over. It's, it's beautiful here. Fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed we can all do it very, very soon. Good. So how's the weather in Blighty this morning? Fairly tropical, I've been reading so far. Well, not actually today. No, we've had a bit of a heat wave last week, which was quite fortunate for us because we had to have the joy of isolating at home. Um, so we were relishing having a big paddling pool, kindly donated by <laughs> a village friend, <laughs> and uh, sunbathing in the garden and actually it being beautiful weather. But it changed at the weekend, so we're now back to slightly grey, very typical British summertime, really. Mm, sort of grey and gloomy, typical sort of bank holiday British weather by the sounds of things. It is rather, yeah. yeah. We're, we're currently melting in 45 degree heat at the moment which is slightly unbearable but yeah <laughs> it's it's making me learn the italian for various different ways of complaining about the weather so now i can be very british but in italian which is quite good i love that that's <laughs> fantastic <laughs> okay so obviously you're sort of very famous you came to the public's attention sort of during bake-off but we'll we'll come to that later on in the podcast so let's sort of be a bit Freudian, take you back to your childhood. So what, what sort of memories have you got about food as a child then? Well, it's quite Famous Five, to be honest. Although we don't really refer to it as Famous Five. It's more Swallows and, Al- Swallows and Amazons childhood, anyone who's read <laughs> Swallows and Amazons. So we were really lucky. I grew up here in West Sussex. I've moved away and come back uh, to bring my children up here, our children up here. Um, and so really, we had a camper van. Uh, VW camper van, um, a K registration, and it had a pop-up stripy red and white roof with little bunks in. And I've got two brothers. Um, we had a boat, a skip of fourteen for anyone who's in the sailing world, dinghy that we towed. Um, and we were out and about lots, really. So we went to the local schools, but um, we were always up early at the weekend. At uh, knocking on friends' doors at about five or six in the morning, asking if they wanted to come up onto the South Downs to have bacon sandwiches for breakfast, take the kite up. Um, I remember vividly, you know, cooking, being up there before anyone else was up there. Um, or we'd be down at the harbour, um, sailing, you know, mucking about on kayaks and then, you know, piling into the van every time it started to chuck it down with rain. Um, <laughs> and, you know, misty, steamed up camper van, windows, um, fish and chips, if we were lucky, um, and then taking that abroad as well. So, um, in fact, we were very bohemian looking back on the pictures um, with another family, friends of ours, who also had a camper van, and we would take them on the ferry over to Brittany. Um, and that's, I suppose, really where the sort of real kind of food and adventures came from. You know, that outdoorsy lifestyle, whether it be, you know, um, very British pork pies, um, topped with applesauce on the shores of Derwent water and Coniston water (laughs) sheltering from the rain um or whether it was huge big pans of green beans cooked in the camper van um with jars of vinaigrette and you know Mm. jumping in the sea to wash off all our sticky fingers so 
yeah, I guess food was always very much part of my memories and of my childhood. Um, yeah, we were very fortunate to, to have that kind of freedom to explore and to taste different things, even though I was quite fussy, did taste quite a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, is there anything sort of now that you wouldn't eat as a child that you, you would eat now? Or Lots. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have to check myself because um, I've got three children myself and my eldest eats absolutely everything and my next two don't eat everything. <laughs> and, um, and I can sometimes hear myself and then I think, oh, I'm not sure I ate that when I was little. <laughs> so um, I think there's quite a lot of things. Yeah, I, mean, I certainly I was I didn't eat a lot of spicy food when I was little. And, you know, now I you know, love curries and Thai and different things like that. And I'm still not very good at it being very hot chilies. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I just think a lot of it's maturity, isn't it? Growing up. And I think that, you know, I often say to friends, that it's important that the children see us eating it, even if they're not always trying it themselves. You know, that is still part of it, isn't it? That that exposure to it. And, you know, mine have loved pottering around huge big markets in France or Spain and, you know, reminding me of what it was like when we were little doing the same you know it's all about exploring isn't it and trying even if it's the touch of it and you're not prepared to taste it that day when you're little and fussier so that's really sort of where your sort of where your your love of food started or was there anything else that sort of sparked it well yeah and then I mean baking baked from when I was tiny and always sort of having that freedom to try making different things and experimenting and adding different stuff and I, I love that whole thing I think it was probably from when I was very tiny always sort of doing what I would call my food and baking prescriptions you know <laughs> thinking what people liked and you know my mum always used to make my dad a lovely sort of sponge flan with raspberries on from the garden and you know things that were you know the personalizing of it and the things that make it special for different people and we cooked a lot at home my brothers and I you know live in different parts of the country now but we can still stand in any of our kitchens and do a roast whether it's christmas lunch or or just a sunday roast and all pick up at different parts of it and don't have to sort of like talk about who's doing what we can just pull out this and know what needs doing and pull out that and you know they love they love cooking and and food as well so you know family lunches and having people over lots and you know my mum always making lots of cakes or you know even for when we were tiny for christenings and birthday parties food was always a huge part of it you know the merry-go-round cake that my mum made or we always had chocolate krispies or you know she would always be making um different kinds of things and I think that's what connects us isn't it you know uh, I never met my maternal grandmother but my mum tells me that she made little rabbit biscuits and iced them and put mm. them in little velvet bags with satin ribbons she was a milliner by trade but you know I'm very one of the very few of my friends that does that and did that with my children for their parties. And there was my grandmother in the <laughs> 1940s doing that for my mother's birthdays. And yet, you know, we never met, but that's been a real connection. And, and I suppose for me then, you know, food was always about much more than the food. It was about the, the coming together around the table and, you know, that slightly hectic frenetic feeling in the kitchen of trying to get it all ready. And I can always remember when we had people to stay or people for, lunch that we'd help get it all ready and get the food ready and then we'd all get on our bikes and we'd go right to the top of the lane and out to the you know top of the village to see when they were coming and then when they arrived in their cars we'd we'd race them down to our house you know that was all part of it the, <laughs> the family and the friends and the being together and then and then I also always relished that you know what would other people bring I mean I'm still you know have family friends from when we were little where I'll message the mum and say 
was that you used to make and what did you used to put in that chicken casserole that we always had and we always had Christmas Eve at another friend's house or our house and you know even from quite little I can remember thinking well what are we going to eat you know that whole idea of planning what we would put on the table and planning the different things and then as I got older more confident you know having the freedom to do that and I think that was you know credit to to my parents there was never any um there was never any oh don't mess up the kitchen or there was never any that knife's too sharp for you I mean to give you an example my (laughs) younger brother who is now a professor (laughs) of engineering at two years old my father bought him a tiny little toolbox and filled it with real tools and he used to stand in the kitchen with a little tiny tool bench my dad had made properly sawing and we would have friends over and and they would really be quite horrified I think they thought my parents were quite negligent (laughs) and my dad would be like well he's totally understands what he needs to do I've shown him how to use a saw and a drill and you know it's it's interesting because the same applied to their attitude towards food well sailing whatever it was you know you know you if you were old enough to be there and do it then you needed to be chucked off the end of the jetty in your life jacket to test the life jacket so if you weren't old enough to be on the end of the jetty and to swim and to be safe uh, you know then you couldn't go sailing if you couldn't be chucked in so and it was a bit the same with food I think you know I don't ever remember there being you know my mum used to she worked as a teacher um like you guys from when she was we were quite little and I remember she used to leave a note on the kitchen counter and it would say could you go and buy everything to make a lasagna um and she'd leave five pounds and I would go you know it was quite a good walk down to the shops where we lived and I'd go down Mm. to the shops and I'd go to the bit butchers and I'd buy you know 250 grams of mince and she'd always say get the ground steak not the (laughs) it's really interesting and you know we'd have I knew what we would have in at home I'd checked what we had in the fridge at home you know had we got a tin tomato so you know and I'm not saying it was the standard of the amazing lasagnas that you'll be having there in southern Italy but I came home and I would make it and I was probably 10 (laughs) um and the same with roasts you know my mum would buy a lovely piece of meat and you know a big piece of pork our bitches had a lot of local Sussex pork and you know lovely crackling and it was learned at her elbow it was you know you slice the top of the crackling don't forget to put the lemon and salt on you know and I was doing that as a subconscious so that whole what we now call scratch cooking is just just being there just absorbing it all and being allowed to do it and and my mum always used to say well oh, the oven's been on for the roast. What do you want? What do you want to put in it? You know, whether I would make scones or a cake or when I was a bit older, I went through all of, you know, Delia's <laughs> sections of you know, different things I could make, mm. fit rolls, whatever, you know. And and yeah, and that would be another coming back together and we would sit and eat that in the garden later or, you know, and if it didn't work, it didn't matter. No one, no one minded. It wasn't about it looking a certain way you know I was always fixing stuff up from when I was tiny that comes into what I do now with all my mottos of when I teach and you know share my love of of baking and cooking I always say it's happily imperfect it doesn't people love it because you've made it they don't love it because it looks like something from a factory or shop so I guess that's all it all weaves into that kind of like freedom of childhood I suppose you know, just go in, get your hands dirty and have a go at it. And it'll probably end up delicious, but it, you know, it just may not end up looking like the picture, for example. I was talking to um, a friend yesterday um, and her husband is, his mother was a really, really top cook, actually. And he was talking and he said, 
to me completely kind of out of blue I haven't seen them for a while it was uh, their daughter's birthday and we popped over to have a bounce in the bouncy castle before that you know her party and friends arrived and and he said to me there's the people that cook aren't there and there's the people who add a bit of them and that's exactly what I always say that you're putting a bit of you into it and that's what people want you must have seen that being out there in Italy with people and their generosity and saying mm. come and have this and it could be the simplest thing it could be that it's a huge you know bucket of courgettes that have gone crazy in someone's garden and they've turned it into something so simple you know we all crave that don't we, we want to know what have you put in it you know how did you make it taste like that what did you do to it beforehand and you know, that's what it's about and, and also not like you say not fearing it being something you would be judged for of course, I've had lots of judging of my food, oh, and, I've, welcome, and I've judged welcome. lots of other people's. We'll come to that, don't you worry. Um. <laughs> not worrying, and hopefully that's something that we will bring as a real positive. When people talk about positives from the pandemic, you know, hopefully mm. that's what we will come back to. Look, the really important thing about it was us being together, and that it was about being able to show love through food, you know, whether that was the biscuits you baked and put in a parcel and sent to someone or the cake you left on someone's doorstep or you know the fact that you know you got the kids um zooming and cooking something together because they couldn't be together and their cousins and they normally were able to celebrate their birthdays or whatever it was and i think that whole sense of bringing it back down to that really simple thing which is we're coming together mm, to be together exactly. and the food is a catalyst for that food is 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 why you've come come on come and have this with us or have you tried this and hopefully that whole fear of thinking well, have we got the right people have we invited the right people or or have we got the right tablecloth or you know does it look okay or is this actually my style is this how i want it to look hmm. actually none of that really matters because what people really want is to sit and chat over a bowl of soup yeah. or a piece of flapjack and actually see each other and 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 that hopefully that's what we will take from it is that really simple message of what food really stands for it's one of the reasons i do this podcast just like everybody loves talking about food and you know we all we all know don't we any of us that, that cook you know that it isn't just standing there and putting stuff in a bowl you know it is about what you add on top of it isn't it and, mm. and that effort and your wife standing there thinking through well what do we you know do we do the potatoes this way or that way and how do we love it best and what do we want to show them and which potatoes did we get and like you say about the sprouts but you know it's still it's our traditions isn't it it's sharing yeah. so much more than just sitting there talking about it because it's yeah. really there isn't it it's really yeah. living and breathing and eating it yeah as you said it's sort of and say it's the little bit of love that you put into it as well but i didn't make the same mistake with the meat order that i made the christmas before where i went into the local butchers and made a mistake as far as kilograms and pounds were concerned my too much or too little? Far, far too much. Um, my wife said, okay, what we need is we maybe need an eight-pound turkey for the amount of people we've got coming round. Because the first one we cooked was for a group of 15, I think it was. So I said, right, okay, go down to the butcher's order an eight-pound turkey. <clears throat> In between me leaving the door and walking into the butcher's shop, um, I'd started doing the maths in my head to convert it into kilos and got it completely wrong. So I ended up ordering an eight kilogram turkey. Brilliant. That's my kind of turkey. Yeah. So Christmas Eve went to pick it up and then they suddenly brought out what looked like a plucked pterodactyl. From the... <laughs> <laughs> and all the, all the nonners in the shop are going, brava, brava, brava. And I'm just looking at it going, Jesus wept. What Did it fit in the oven? 
Um, it had to be, it had to be trimmed. I yeah. think. <laughs> had to do that before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the wings and the legs straight off, straight in the freezer. So it's just a turkey crown by the time we finished. But it was great, you know. It's never mind sort of turkey curry for Boxing Day. It was turkey curry in March by the time we'd actually got through it. But <laughs> oh, I love the leftovers. I think that's uh, yeah. these things usually happen for a reason, don't they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> leftovers are generally sort of the best part of the meal. But before we get on to the bit that I think probably the listeners are nudging me towards, what about Italy? Because you mentioned Brittany before, but what about memories of Italy? So first time, so my father worked for the railways so we went lots and lots of places on the train um night sleepers um went across canada went across uh, france went down to italy um across to scotland put our camper van on went to scotland on the sleeper train um because my father didn't have a company car he had rail travel for us all <laughs> so that's that's what we did um so we went one easter to um monton which anyone who knows is right on the um border of Italy at the very bottom uh, south of France border of Italy mm. um and I can remember of course because we were on holiday with no car we went over by train and we took a train across onto Ventimiglia and then up into the mountains uh, my dad would always have this little list of itineraries that we would be needing to do usually they involved hugely delayed connections so that he could see some certain specific station in some random random place we got wiser <laughs> when we were older and we would check check and verify the schedules beforehand before we committed but it would often mean that we ended up somewhere like you know a little rural stop um you know and I can remember having amazing wood-fired pizzas on those first little forays into Italy um and and also feeling that difference you know when you crossed the French Italian border you know that whole sort of sense of excitement that we stepped into this other country and then we would be dipping back because we were staying in a in a hotel one of our very few hotel holidays in Monton um mm. so I do remember that really well and I remember that feeling of that whole sense of it changing like it just felt more I don't know, more, maybe a little bit more edgy, a bit more, um, I don't know, just more different attitude to food. I mean, obviously Monton has got a, a fabulous attitude to food. It's lemon festivals and beautiful Mediterranean food. So I do remember that. And then after I'd finished at university, we did a month traveling around Italy on train or by train. And I suppose that was when I really felt like I fell in love with Italy, having watched sort of, you know, a room with a view and, you know, always sort of loved that whole sense of the history and the architecture. And I just finished a history degree at Durham. So um, we literally just packed what we could tra uh, have in a backpack and got the train across to Paris and get the night sleeper down to Rome. And if anyone's done that, I mean, it's just an experience to die mm. for. And I mean, we, we had booked into a six berth couchette, which is one of the sleeping cabins and had got there early enough. So on the concourse on the platforms at Paris had got onto the top bunks and if anyone knows what it's like you know they're really tight to the ceiling and then you have two more below and you're mm. only meant to have six people I mean you'd never get away with this in the days of going with six Not people anymore. <laughs> and as this it sat in the platform and it's quite a long time you know rumbling along everyone loading up the train everyone getting on this cabin got fuller and fuller and fuller with this Italian family and I think we counted that there were nine of them in there with us and they immediately flipped up the middle bunk sat on the bottom bunk got out a huge big like I don't even I can't remember whether it was a pan of pasta they weren't cooking it but it would be you know like trays of pasta on me and we were sat on this top bunk you know with our 
bit of baguette with ham and cheese and some panache glass and some flies we'd got in Paris. <laughs> and and all night, you know, it was constant uh chat and family and little tiny ones snuggled up with the older granny on the bottom bunk and, and and yeah i mean i don't think we got to rome until sort of like three the next afternoon or so it was quite a long journey and um, but it was an amazing insight like almost you know like a um a privilege to observe it sitting there on these you know top bunks watching this whole i think they handed us some stuff up as well so and then we went all the way around italy so we we all on fur tour on the train and you know Rome and Siena and we didn't have much money we were kind of backpacking um mm. Venice um uh where else did we go Verona um all around Lake Tresemino and Perugia um yeah it was just it was just magical um amazing and that sort of really you know didn't have a lot of money so sought out the really good restaurants that weren't very expensive finding you know fantastic places to have ice cream in venice that weren't going to break our bank and meant we had enough money still to get the train home um yeah it was amazing it was amazing so i guess that was my real sort of you know chance to, and also to feel the different regions a bit more feel how it felt you know, uh you know you and i've talked about that briefly before about how you know different areas and how much friendlier it was or you know the people as, who would see us walking with our backpacks i mean as cc i can you know it's imprinted on my mind forever arriving the train at scc and that clatter of everyone getting off and then walking through those sunflower fields mm. on and on and on up and seeing a cc sort of rearing out <laughs> just just amazing you know the people offering you a lift in their car coming up and you know the friendliness of it all so yes even i mean a lot of them were touristy places but some of them we sought out you know weren't and were much sort of quieter and more you know simple and yeah it was just amazing just really good food buying lovely stuff at markets and getting there early and you know meals in little tiny not really hotels pensions that we'd sort of booked in advance um and you know then some of them we turned up and had to move at the last minute because they weren't great and finding other places yeah it was just yeah, yeah amazing yeah it's, it's, it's sort of as you say just finding the, the different places to eat because if you go on the tourist trail I mean, personally, you know, I mean, again, you know, it, it sounds perhaps a little bit snobby, but if I see a restaurant when I'm out and about in Italy that has a tourist menu, I give it a wide berth because it's, it's just not going to be great. My top tip for anybody is when it gets to lunchtime, look for somebody in work overalls and follow, follow them. Great that, idea. Yeah, because it's that they're going to be going somewhere cheap and going to be going somewhere good. So just tag behind them. Don't look too suspicious, but just, just keep them within sight and follow where they're going. Well, and also I think that, you know, and I still think this now when we travel and, you know, when we finally get abroad again, um, is that, you know, it's not just the restaurants, is it? It's also finding the fantastic little bakeries that have got the mm. wonderful stuffed pies or pasties that are very local or regional or, you know, finding places that are doing, you know, the incredible cakes that just look exquisite or the ones that just actually taste taste amazing but sort of made out of the back of someone's kind of kitchen mm. on on a corner somewhere and you know actually like you say following that sniff following that a sort of trail of the locals and, and knowing what to find and, and it's a bit like you said about the I think language and food are very similar like that you know not not fearing your pigeon Italian letting you down but actually thinking that as soon as you start talking about food and asking people where places are that you are building that kind of relationship and you know 
maybe a transient community but it is still in your community while you're staying there isn't it you know yeah, asking exactly. where the places are that are special and who's making what and where oh, where did you get that from and not worrying that people are going to think your you know your language skills aren't up to standard is a bit like not worrying that your cooking skills aren't up to standard it's the same thing yeah it's, it's, it's again just sharing sort of sharing a mutual love really but it's it's you know it's it's definitely religion over here food and i think you know that's that's the way that we really sort of start off any conversation with people that we don't know but i think it's you know a, a love of food and and family i think hopefully now after what's happened hopefully that sort of now becomes sort of universal around the world but it's been coming all the way through the podcast <laughs> bake off so that's that's where you obviously first came to my attention being one of the trailblazers on the on the first series of the bake off um i mean i've I've had a very little sort of ex- bit of experiences sort of cooking on TV is concerned because I appeared on this thing called Britain's Best Dish on ITV. So any, go- any gossip to tell me or any, <laughs> any, anything that happened behind the scenes that might be of interest? Well, I was very impressed that you'd done your uh, detailed research. You're being very modest about it, Craig, because um, <laughs> I've had lots of interviews. And I don't think anyone's ever asked me before. So there you go. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was an incredible experience, but it was also totally crazy. And I don't think, I think anyone who um, has done Bake Off recently or then will, will totally agree. It's like, it's like living in a parallel universe. He said, we didn't live in it. Um, <laughs> we dipped into it and then came back to our normal crazy life. And at the time I had a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So you can imagine it was quite a surreal. Stage. I mean, it was so, we were very green and we were very naive. It was the first ever series of the Great British Bake Off. We even had to sign a um, contract that said if it never went to air, then we had no redress on that because it was really very much a trial for the BBC. They were very limited budget. We knew nothing about how it was going to work or be structured. So um, Paul Hollywood has always taken great, uh, I won't say great pleasure, but has often teased us and said, you know, it's much harder now, it's much more competitive. But the difference for us was that we had no idea what was going on. Mm. And I put that in context and people don't often, two things that people don't often believe is true is that the first morning we were woken very early. We'd gone to stay in a, a pub in the Cotswolds and we woke very early all piled into a minibus to be taken to location and we turned up in Kingham and uh, on the village green in Kingham was a huge marquee and we all sat there in the minibus and said well that's nuts how can we possibly film today if there's a village fake going on so we didn't even know that we were filming in a tent okay when mm-hmm. if you think now how much of a part of the bake-off brand and identity a tent is that was quite significant and the first weekend of filming so we tended our year we filmed one episode over one weekend so two mm-hmm. long very long days of filming all of the recipes all the continuity and everything um probably 14 hour days i would probably imagine maybe 12 hour days um and the first weekend of filming we had to do all our own washing up. We had foot pump <laughs> sinks at the end of the worktop, which you had to share with one other person and you had to wash it all up. And that took up most of our time. So um, we did feedback about that as we can, but mm. it, we, none of us had done any TV before, obviously um, you're on camera the whole time. So you have, I counted at one point, I think the most I had was nine cameras pointing at me Um going around the room your everything you say is recorded if you say that you need to pop to the loo which was for us a portaloo in the field or 
we were very lucky in Mausel. We had the public loos on the quay, but we had to wait in a queue with the people who'd come off the beach with their kids, which was relaxing. Again, something that people don't um, often believe, but it is true. So as you would go out to go to the loo, you would say to one of the producers, I just need to pop to the loo. And I remember walking out of the tent once in um, Saar in Kent near the windmill. And we had a very blurry day. And the portal was at the corner of the field. <laughs> and as I walked out of the tent, Andy Devershaw, who was our director, he went across the thing. So it's so like, there's probably 45 people, crew and and all of us guys hmm. and he went just let everyone know Miranda's going to Deluge back in a few minutes and I remember thinking <laughs> oh my goodness and they always used to say to you flick off your you know flick off your power pack your oh, no. recording pack so you went to the and I always trusted that they would and they would stop recording but you know even little things it took me probably three weeks of three episodes of filming and I remember standing there and saying to one of my other part, uh, competitors what I don't understand is when it's all going really well nobody comes over to have a look at what I'm doing and when it's not going very well everybody's there like like literally the minute it starts to go wrong it's like um, they've switched on a magnet and you've got like producer mm. cameraman cameraman by your feet filming it someone asking you what's going wrong and this uh, fellow contestant looks at me and he went well you could try to stop talking to yourself <laughs> and then they wouldn't know it's going wrong and I was like oh my goodness it was like one of those absolute epiphany moments ah that'll be why so when i'm saying to myself i'm gonna have to start this camera again it's not working they're like right cameras five six seven eight (laughs) get someone over there and ask her why it's not working and of course it really then wouldn't work but i think what you're nudging at is that what i didn't find out until quite a long way into the filming was the first weekend that we filmed uh was cake week and we'd been filming all day very long day um it was very cold bizarrely it was summer but very cold in the marquee there'd been no budget heating we we're all shivering and had got our um, ovens open to keep us warm um while we did and we did the last technical challenge and i was just exhausted really and it takes quite a lot for me to get a bit upset but just the whole thing had just been too much i'd had a whole week the week beforehand with people filming at home and assessments in london i'd got two tiny children um mm. trying to get packed up to go away i was obviously worried about them with me being away my littlest was only two um and we did a challenge which was to make a Victoria sponge which in everybody who does baking would probably have thought that was very easy for Miranda why could that have been a problem um, and when it came out um, it wasn't how I wanted it to look and I in confidence I went to the side to speak to one of the senior producers who I'd known because we'd done weeks of assessments and mm. competitions and judging I knew this girl really well and I said I wanted to just have a five minute um kind of like a bit of wise counsel with her I'd not done tv before and this is what they'd said to us to do that if you felt anxious you know like you, you knew it wasn't gonna how were you gonna handle it because you were really tired and didn't want to you know feel like you were getting overly upset about something like a little cake anyhow so I stood and talked to her had a bit of a heart to heart with her at the corner of the tent and I looked over her shoulder and there was a camera on me with the red light running mm. and I said to her oh am I being filmed and they said, no, no, no. Everyone was like, no, 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 And I was quite upset because, you know, obviously filming is a very intrusive thing, isn't it? And we hmm. put ourselves out there, but we were all sort of, you know, very um, new to it. And anyhow, so it, I said I wasn't going to talk anymore because <laughs> I obviously was being filmed. And what they were trying to do was trying to get this lovely inside emotional story. But I felt like that they were impinging upon my sort of 
confidence, I suppose, and my trust. Hmm. So what I didn't know is I went, uh, we all went to pack up then at the end, finished filming for the day, went to go back to get food and stuff. And I then bumped into Sue Perkins in the village hall loose. It's all very glamorous. (laughs) The first series of Bake Off. It's all about loons, this. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, this is where you have interesting conversations. And um, and she said something to me about, was I okay? And I said, well, I'm just a bit upset that this has happened. And weeks later, I'll find out. And anyone who's read Sue Perkins's autobiography, I found out actually traveling back on a train uh, with Mel on, from one of the filmings, I think it was. It might have been after we'd finished filming at another event. And it turned out that they felt the same as me that they felt that we were sort of um not being treated enough with not kid gloves because we were all grown-ups but you know that it was a big deal for us and that um they went off and it turned out i didn't know but they had a massive uh heart to heart with the production company and their agent mm-hmm. and as sue says i think in her autobiography they had actually discussed whether or not they felt that it was the right show for sort of them to be involved with but I didn't know any of that at the time I just went back exhausted and sort of was persuaded to come and have something to eat and food cures a lot of stuff doesn't it yeah. and, um, we were quite direct the next day and we said to the production crew about how you know we'd all felt that we had this trust thing and you know it, it set a lot of boundaries in place probably for um Bake Off filming now even you know and and also we talked a lot and had a big uh, session with them all about how for us baking was about love and kindness and community and that we wanted to be able to help each other out if it went wrong and you often see that on on Bake Off now um, and at the time I think maybe they thought it was going to be more of a tough competing against each other whereas for all of us it was really about sharing what we loved and we loved the fact that you know if someone's pie or pudding collapsed that we could rush in and help them or you know if our oven broke we could put our stuff in someone else's oven a bit like you would have done mm. you know with your neighbors in lockdown or we would have done uh, you know that kind of sense of caring and community so i suppose it, it it entrenched that and hopefully that's something that has lasted within you know the way that the bake-off is and why we actually all love the bake-off because it is that sense of yes it's a competition of course it is but yeah. everyone also is enjoying the companionship of baking and cooking together aren't they well what it also did was that it made us very close to Mel and Sue because it felt like they were our advocates and that they were part of our team because of course they straddled it didn't they they weren't Mm. our judges but and actually what I think it then brought out was that they realized that they needed to nurture and nudge and you know the actual I mean all of that really did happen the stealing of the ingredients (laughs) Mel (laughs) helping herself to handfuls some of my chocolate and then going you didn't need this did you and I was like yes I did Mel but I know what you're like now and I've got a spare lot in my bag and so you know all of that actual uh like you say camaraderie between them and us as well between us and Mel and Sue and I think that has echoed through into the way that those roles have developed within the show so even though Mm. the personalities have changed you still see don't you um you still see uh those presenters whoever they are are the ones that are loving supporting caring coaching those contestants and hopefully some of that has been a bit of a hangover from you know that sort of maybe that forced the issue a little bit more made us really think about those roles within it because when you're doing something new like that it's not always it's not always just easy to see that, is it, and how that will mm. grow and develop. 
So obviously then you, you finish Bake Off, but I think it's safe to say that you've not been sitting on the settee since Bake Off. You've had your fingers in a few pies, perhaps? Yes, indeed. So um, actually, I, when I finished the Bake Off, um, I, I'd sort of just put my head down and, and pushed on. And I never thought that um, I'd even get past the first episode. I never thought I'd got, get on the show. So I went on it and I just thought, I'm just going to try and love it and enjoy it and get on with it. And it was stressful and quite difficult. But at the very last bit where I left the show, Mary held me by the hand and said, I reminded her of her when she was little. Um, and it was a really powerful thing. And I hadn't realised how um, Mary had been backing me and fighting for me um, and could see, you know, I suppose, stuff in what I was doing. And, you know, I'm a bit modest about it, but, you know, could see my talent and my taste and stuff. You know, she loved my stuff and she was... Sue actually then took me to one side after that bit of filming when we'd gone off air and she said, look, don't forget this because this is Mary Berry telling you this. And, Mm. you know, sort of there is something really special here and you haven't seen that relationship as in you haven't seen how she's advocated for you. You haven't seen how she's uh, backed you, how she's loved all your stuff, but, but she has, and, and, you know, she really wanted you to win and she really wanted you to, you know, run with this. So, when it all finished filming, we hadn't really ever had any chance to sit down and talk to Mary and Paul. I mean, other than sort of casual at the catering van and, you know, mm. not a huge amount of sort of like one-on-one time, obviously, because they were trying to keep it a bit of a distance with us and the judges. I mean, we got to know them really well, but not on a personal level. So when we filmed the final, um, Mary said something about, oh, are we really, I'm really cross if you don't do something with this. You've got lots of <laughs> you really must do something with this and it's funny because I hadn't really thought about that I'd been so immersed you know when we did it you know I I was so immersed in just doing it and getting through it and looking after two children when I got home and we were having to prep all the recipes in between the different shows and it was just crazy and I think driving back to the final I thought well it's not really like my style but I think I'm going to write to her and I, I wrote to Mary and I, and I said how much it meant to me, her, that she'd said these things. And I, and I said, look, I just wondered if I could come at some point and, you know, come for a cup of tea and just ask you some advice on this. Because it's completely, you know, I'd worked in MS for 14 years in management roles and project management roles. I had worked in food a bit, but not in creative food roles. And, you know, it's a whole new area. And I wanted mm. to know what she meant, like, don't waste this and what should you do with it? And so it was quite astonishing. I, she said, yeah, I'd love to love it come over (laughs) and I drove to her house and thought of all these questions what I was going to ask and it was really amazing and surreal and really down to earth I was sat in her uh, office behind her kitchen with Lucy Young and yeah they were really honest and they and I they said what do you want to do and I I I don't know but anyhow (laughs) what I had really loved was that I'd loved having my recipes in a book and although I'd loved I'd loved the experience of the TV and I loved being on camera. There was also something incredibly lasting about this whole thing that we'd had our recipes in the cookbooks. And I said, well, you know, I'd call me crazy if I say it, but I'd really love to do a book. And she said, well, have you got any ideas? And I had, I I got this idea for a biscuit book. I looked very carefully with my commercial head on from MS mm. and there wasn't anything in the market. And I'd done my decorated biscuits and Paul had said I could have served them at the Dorchester and, and I think, I, think, I think Mary also said, so you were the queen of iced biscuits during the show as well. Yes. So it was a real sort of like 
point and I said to her well look I had sort of thought do you think this is crazy but you know I sort of thought I'd quite like to do a book on biscuits and she said well I think that would be a great idea because it's a really narrow area not many people have covered it um and she said but you know you 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 know these are the hard truths of how difficult a business it is to get into um you'll need an agent such and such um you should do it and actually she was very direct she was amazing very direct I had lunch in the kitchen with her and Lucy and her husband, one of her assistants, and her 105-year-old mother. Um, <laughs> and she, the assistant had made a quiche, and we had that. And yeah, it was just amazing. And I went away, and actually I was sort of quite, oh, maybe it's too competitive. And, and she emailed me, or Lucy emailed me the next day and said, look, I'm sorry, really direct. It's hard business to get into, but we thought, you know, you've done stuff in business and, you know, you need to know that these are, you know, these are the challenges that will lie ahead. And she talked to me about how she'd done a lot of books before the first book started selling a lot more and she said never sell out on your what you believe in you know mm. stick to, you know if you get approached by brands and you don't like their stuff don't you know don't work with them work with things that really resonate with you always do your absolute best piece of work because you never know the one piece of writing that you'll sit, submit to something that you think is small and insignificant might be the one thing that then gets picked up and people run with and that becomes your voice yeah. so she did all of that and um and she'd said to me, look, if you want to do a book, you need to get an agent. Um, and she, you know, she, she didn't give me contacts. I just went away and then spent about four months literally boring everyone sent this. Do you know anyone who works with a book agent? Do you know anyone who's a literary agent? And on and on and on. And, and then was recommended through a friend who had worked a bit in TV and stuff. Um, someone I could contact and then they wouldn't take me on because of conflict of interest with another person that they were working with. Mm. Um, and then I got put in touch with an agency and I went up and it turned out they went, Oh, something about Mary. And they'd worked with Mary on BBC books. Um, mm. And so they said, well, tell us what you've got. And if, you know, kind of whatever, and they really liked my book proposal. So we ended up working together and I, they took me, got, they got me an in, the publishers liked my book proposal and they got me in um, interviews with quite a lot of publishers. And I ended up having, um, yeah, really exciting. Having like two days in London, going to Hub Collins and mm. uh, Penguin and Roundabout. I mean, just amazing. Sitting there talking about my book. <laughs> this is my book. Um, and obviously it's still not a dead set. And then, um, and then had an amazing phone call where we had two different publishers uh, pitching for it and i got a deal with ebri who are part of random house to do a two book deal um and not knowing at the time what the second book was so that was sort of what kept me busy to begin with so i launched straight into writing my biscuit book i did that and then i was also pregnant with my littlest so he was a <laughs> unsurprisingly a nine pound 12 ounce baby after having <laughs> had quite a lot of biscuits um and i worked a lot with Kenwood and um, growing my brand in different areas did quite a lot with uh, Sainsbury's magazine lots with um, got some lovely book reviews when my book came out um, launched it in Fortnum and Mason's uh, yeah it was all very sort of amazing and then went quite quickly on to doing my I think I had a year renovated and gutted the house here built a big kitchen with uh, Shalon to do teaching and filming mm -hmm. and stuff in um, started my uh, kitchen school uh, <laughs> And then, um, yeah, it's just been awesome. Did another book, my cake book, Bake Me a Cake as Fast as You Can, appropriately enough. Um, and if anyone ever asks if you can make them fast, you can, because I used to have the builder standing in the doorway <laughs> saying, I'm turning the power off in an hour. So do what you need to do. Me with a one-year-old disappearing under the floorboards and the house being uh, cut up behind me. Yeah, and then it's just gone on and on. I've done lots of different things. Um, 
run a kitchen school here, done lots of Zoom classes during lockdown, do a food column for NFU Countryside, which is very much in keeping with my sort of like simple seasonal food, food memories, mm. uh, that kind of uh, messaging. Um, yeah, and just, yeah, I love it. Never thought that I'd end up having my thing that I'm passionate about being what I do every day, day in, day out. Yeah, as I say, sort of having a job where it's actually something you love, it's, it's just an amazing thing. But what about, okay, you, you obviously like cooking. I think that's taken as read. But if you could have a meal out wherever you wanted to, what would be your favourite meal? Okay. Um, well, it would have to be by the sea. Mm-hmm. so location's really important and I'm a bit like <laughs> Eston Blumenthal like that I need to have the sea fret it doesn't have yeah. to be hot and sunny it can be wild and windy but I, I love that whole thing um the seaside is really important to me so it would have to be by the sea um and then it would be, have to be as fresh as possible so it would either be the you know freshly caught uh longestine or you know amazing crab or I mean if it wasn't by the sea it would be by the water maybe a mm. lake you know one of the lakes in Italy or in this country um and then it would be super fresh it would be I mean ideally a seafood platter because I'm quite indecisive so I'd like to be able to pick through <laughs> lots of different things you'd I love it have down- to like check you're not stealing mine <laughs> you'd love it down here that's a speciality it's just like loads of sea fish on a plate but go on <laughs> wonderful yeah so I love that and love the fact you know all beautifully arranged I can, you know, sort of like when they put it on a big cake stand almost in the middle, I think that lovely styling of it as well is part of it, isn't it? That realness and that that freshness of it. And then, you know, gorgeous lemons, beautiful, crusty bread that's been made that day, you know, with that whole knowing from my own commitment to sourdough and bread making, you know, what's gone into that and that, you know, that mm. taste of that. Um, and then gorgeous homemade mayonnaise or whatever dressing or sauce that is that local speciality that you know people would be dipping that seafood into um and then am i allowed to talk about puddings because that's really important as well obviously yeah (laughs) um yeah and then it would you know obviously i adore that whole sort of like what people make with their local seasonal fruit you know whether that's the really juicy dripping peaches or the lemons or the local almonds nuts and you know chocolate <laughs> anything mm. chocolatey is a hit for me I, I i love that whole you know what are what varieties of things are people making you know whether it's the you know hazelnuts that have been toasted and roasted and mixed with chocolate to make <laughs> amazing tarts so you know that whole sense of being connected to where you're living staying eating being you know um and yeah. and having someone telling you about it as well that not you know it doesn't for me it doesn't need to be it doesn't need i mean i love a beautiful restaurant and white cloths and fantastic mm. waiters dressed up like penguins I, I love all of that but i also i don't need that you know someone cooking that for me on a barbecue or helping mm. them get wood on a deserted beach that we've kayaked to would be incredible as well yeah i mean like you said something something from and of the land and the sea has just got that special thing to it so talked about your history what about now then so hopefully now we're coming out of the pandemic fingers and everything else that isn't painful crossed what about what about your plans for the year then well now i've survived homeschooling and three of them here busy (laughs) me teaching and doing all that kind of stuff um well the thing that i'm really uh prioritizing at the moment is actually my podcast (laughs) 
which is very exciting. So I've been busy trying to record a few bits and uh, lining up some interesting people. I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of fascinating people in this whole world of cake and baking and food <clears throat> and really it's about sharing that and it's called more than cake so i have been doing a lot of work during lockdown about sort of defining what i stand for um, and it's very much about simplicity so it's simply miranda it's more than cake it's a philosophy for life so it's about mm. life and childhood and food and memories and the seasons it's not just about food it's not just about cake and so the podcast is called more than cake because cake is such a catalyst for so many things and it's really i guess a podcast about the power of cake of how it can create conversation <clears throat> it can bring in words and emotion when it's too hard to talk it can change people's lives because it can give them focus in bouts of depression or isolation or lockdown it can communicate uh, in a different way when we bake together and stand side by side there's a lot of evidence about how the whole process of cooking and baking side by side because we don't need eye contact can mm. form a sort of therapy and a form of togetherness that perhaps we can't reach when we're sat down trying to counsel a friend or trying to support it, it creates it in a different way it can be quieter more companionable um so yes i had someone say to me that was i going to be the stacy dooley of cake <laughs> so that was quite a, quite an interesting one and it's a bit about the poking under those layers of sticky icing to find out what that secret ingredient is and how people mm. have translated that into life so i have it took me a long time after i did the bake-off to know that it was okay for my cakes to be a bit wonky and not to be perfect and not always to look like magazine cover cakes because hmm. what people loved about them was the fact that i'd made them for them and that i'd picked flowers from my garden that were edible to put on top and that i thought through the fact that they might like to have blackberries in the jam because they were mad about peter rabbit and it was for a birthday party or you know the fact that my mermaid might not have been perfect but i made sweet little mermaid biscuits that went on it because that was my thing and then that was something that they could then have the next day and the children could take home from the party so so yes it's about much more than cake and it's conversations with people over cake sometimes making cake and mm. often about how their recipes for life have been founded through what they've learned with cake. Mm, excellent. Brilliant. So, I, just, I quite like that phrase, poking under the icing. Mm, <laughs> I'm going to use that more in conversation, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that. Well, thank you very much, Miranda Gorbrand. You've been very, very generous with your time today. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you today. Good luck with the podcast. I warn you now, it is very, very, very addictive. Very addictive <laughs> indeed. But as I say, as soon as it comes on wherever, I'll be hitting the subscribe button. So have a fantastic weekend, whatever you're doing this weekend. And thank you very, very much again. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, bye. Thanks to Miranda for being such a wonderful guest. Don't forget to have a look at our show notes for links to a website and a cooking school. Our next guest in two weeks' time is Gina de Blasio, Neapolitan and lover of all things Italian. If you like what you've listened to, please review, comment, and maybe rate us five stars to spread the word. Please also subscribe so you get your next podcast the minute it comes out. Allora dopo!